This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, we're back again in this episode to do yet another good teaching on the Lord's Supper. The last time we were looking at this, we only spent our time in Matthew chapter 26. However, today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 15 to 20. It probably is good to recall for our listeners that here we are going at the what we call the sedes doctrinae, the seats of doctrine. Uh, in other words, we are going to teach what Scripture teaches about the sacrament of the altar based upon clear passages of Scripture that take up the topic and not dreams like uh, John 6 and and other places where there might be allusions to it or not, where it's just not as clear. So what you're talking about here, I was thinking about how Melchizedek, this very mysterious figure that shows up with Abraham, comes out and blesses him. He's got these titles of king of Salem, prince of peace, king of righteousness. My goodness, I mean, these titles sound like none other than the Son of God. Regardless of who he might be, which Luther says that he's Shem. Oh, interesting. He brings out bread and wine. So this is an illusion, but yet it's not the seat of doctrine, which is what you're focusing our attention on. Right, Isn't and, and wouldn't we say that this is how, how we must proceed? There is room for imaginative exegesis, I, and, and I don't want people to misunderstand that. And, you know, we would call what you're talking about typology, right, where uh, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and Christ is the antitype, the fulfiller of the shadow in, in a sense. Uh, we can only understand the way in which Melchizedek is the uh, shadow once we've understood who Christ is, and we can only learn about Christ from the clear passages that speak to him. So, so you always have to begin with the clear passages. Uh, we're not saying, however, that you cannot, uh, you know, as you're talking about this wonderful instance where Melchizedek brings bread and wine, yes, maybe, maybe in fact that does foreshadow uh, the institution of the sacrament of the altar. Maybe it doesn't. And so we would be remiss in dogmatically asserting anything about the sacrament of the altar based upon this typological feature of Scripture. Shall we take a look at uh, Luke chapter 1? Or no, excuse me, not Luke chapter 1. <laughs> Luke chapter 22. Yes. It begins in verse 15. And he said to them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I will not eat it until it has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And having taken a cup and having given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you that I will not drink from now on from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You know, we could start at the very end there and talk about the fruit of the vine, right? What would you say about that, Pastor Kearns, when Jesus is talking about the fruit of the vine? I think there's only really one definition of it, that being wine. And why would you say that? I mean, what's, what compels us to, to come to the deduction that this is wine and not grape juice? Oh, my goodness. Well, grape juice didn't come along until Welch's invented it, and uh, there was refrigeration used in slowing down the fermentation process. Right, and that's, the, and that's just a huge problem, isn't it? Uh, the only way you could have uh, the fruit of the vine as juice would have been to, to get it the day that you had picked the grapes and squished them. Otherwise, uh, any time thereafter, it's got to be wine because it just would not last. 
I think it's also interesting to point out that the way you squish grapes is not the the most um, sanitary uh, thing in the whole wide world. It, it's just, uh, you know, mixed outside and you, and you squish those grapes, whether you're trampling on them by foot or, or what, whatever it might be. <clears throat> juice probably is not the, the most healthy uh, juice in the world to drink before it's been fermented and, and helped along by the alcohol. And of course, we know that alcohol was widely used in the ancient world as the primary drink of most people, unless they had boiled tea or something like this. Because of the water. Because the water was so bad. Yeah, just anything else that what didn't have fermentation was, was no good. And so, yes, Jesus institutes this. I mean, here, here, here he hasn't instituted the sacrament of the altar yet, but he's definitely uh, dealing with wine. And it's important to point out that um, verses 15 through 18 in Luke chapter 22 are really kind of the tail end of the Passover meal, right? And there are clues to that right here in the text. Uh, Jesus says uh, in verse 15, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Um, so uh, this is clearly the end of the Passover meal. But you would want to say something about this desire aspect, how uh, with desire I have desired. Like where, what is what is the connection point with what he's saying there to say even... Eve. Oh, it's it's clear, isn't it? Right. So Eve desires the fruit, and from that point on, the um, the Greek word here is epithumia. I mean, Saint Paul talks about this in Romans chapter seven. It's the way you translate the ninth and tenth commandments in Greek. You shall not covet. So another way to translate this is with covetousness. Have I coveted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer? And here Jesus takes the this desire that was originally implanted in perfect human beings, this desire for God, which has become corrupt as a result of the fall into sin, which actually is the fall into sin, which we call concupiscence, and he sanctifies it. Uh, and he sanctifies it by being the kind of God he wants to be, the God who is a self-giving God, as very shortly we're going to find out just exactly what that self donation looks like on his part. So then in verse 16, Jesus says, For I say to you that I will not eat it until it has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We've talked about this, about how evangelicals would look at this way off into the future, to the eschaton, really. But Jesus is not, he's not thinking in that type of time frame. It's something much sooner. Yeah, that's that is so interesting, isn't it? That the that that the I think we talked about this. The eschatological horizon collapses, um, and Jesus establishes a new kingdom right on his cross. Jesus, you, you mentioned this last time, right? Jesus Nazdarios um, uh, Rex Judaeorum, right? Jesus uh, of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and and so this is the new Israel that's being established. Uh, by the blood of Christ. And so the fulfillment of verse 16 is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Indeed. Yeah. Actually, they get to the house and and they break bread. And see, even when it says that the disciples in Emmaus, when it says that they broke bread, didn't our hearts burn within us? Their eyes were opened. He disappears. Like, this is all supposed to send off these ringing bells to actually, back to what he's already communicated, i.e. these passages like this, Luke 22, verse 16. Right. 
Absolutely. And there, there are all sorts of resonances, too, that carry through in the Acts of the Apostles um, of, of this kind of thing as well. So, But that's I think the, the evangelical sort of doesn't do that. I'm sure not. I think it just kind of sits out there by itself. It doesn't touch anything else. We don't really know what to do with it, so we just put it on the shelf and say, you know, praise be to God. But breaking the bread, eyes being opened, hearts burning within us, all of that, we can't— <laughs> It's like we won't let the scriptures speak for themselves. Right, and that burning in the heart, in other words, you're saying in the evangelical world or in the evangelical mind, that burning in the heart is some sort of purely internal feeling, uh, whatever you might have. Sure. But it's certainly, I mean, I think the interesting thing is it's certainly not brought about by the external application of what the Lord Jesus has instituted for them. Exactly. This is a major contention that we have been talking about, that whatever it is that you receive from God comes from the outside. It does not just well up on the inside at all because the inside is corrupt and full of sin. The Lord Jesus applies his righteousness from the outside. I don't want to make the issue that took place with the disciples on the road to Emmaus get up and walk around here. But you can almost, even though we're not even looking at that text, most pe- most of our listeners are familiar with it. Okay, so Jesus disappears, and then these guys have this conversation, realizing, oh my goodness, this is who we were talking to this whole time. But I mean, is this like a microcosm of Christ's ascension and Pentecost in a way? Because he is leaving them, but yet he's not leaving them. He still is giving them his body for them to eat and drink for the forgiveness of their sins. Does that make sense? It completely makes sense. And this ties in precisely with uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and voila, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's his promise. His promise is that, look, when baptism is there and when everything I have commanded you is there, namely, among those things, primarily the the sacrament of the altar— there's Jesus, according to his promise. And these guys, we already know that they were disciples. So this has already been done to them in that, number one, they have been baptized. Number two, they have been taught. They have been catechized. Right. So he's, you know, just saying, keep doing this. Proliferate. Correct. Correct. And it's, again, I hate to go back to this in a way, but it's like it goes back to to the garden where he says, proliferate. But this is now not just human beings, this is disciples. Make disciples. Right, and and, and there are certain means by, by which one does this. Correct. Right, right. These, these, what we call the means of grace, yeah. You know, and let's talk about the power of the sacrament. So maybe some people are listening to this and saying, well, yeah, you know, next time the, the actual flesh and blood Lord Jesus sits right next to you and walks with you on the road, uh, your heart will burn, and, and, and so there's this sort of disconnection between what you're saying and uh, and the, the Emmaus incident. But there are so many other really important vignettes in the New Testament that show the external power of the sacrament of the altar. So let me give you one here. This is in Acts chapter 20, uh, and this is Eutychus. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered to break bread, what are they doing? Sounds to me like they're gathering for church and they're having the Eucharist. They're having the sacrament of the altar. 
So Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So this was a long sermon. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, by the way, his name means lucky, which is so great. I, I love that. Uh, Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So here he is dead. But remember, he's been having the Eucharist. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Where was this life in him from? It's in him from From the, the arisen and ascended Christ. From the medicine of the resurrection that he had just been taking. You'd have to be a dull head to disconnect verse 10 in what I just read from verse 7 that they were breaking bread. It happens all the time. The evangelical, again, only looks at that last little part about Paul raising Eutychus from the dead. Paul doesn't do it, though. That's the interesting thing. Paul takes him up in his arms, and he says his life is in him. He makes a, a declaration of a fact that's already on the ground. He's preaching more of his sermon here. In a sense, he is, right? <laughs> He's making a proclamation over him. Not that his words have—see, this is the Joel Osteen thing, you know, that his words have the power to do this. Paul's words. Paul's words. Right, right. It's Christ's words connected to the sacrament. This is for you, for the forgiveness of sins. You know, it's interesting. This is exactly what I said in, uh, in the funeral that I did yesterday. You know, that here's this woman. She was baptized as a baby. She's walked with the Lord for her whole life long, and she has taken into her very dying body the living body of Christ Jesus. Can death hold her? No. No, no. Just like death not. couldn't hold him. Right, right. Same thing with, yeah, exactly. And lest anyone think we're being fanciful about this, let's uh, just look at what St. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Isn't that fascinating? Disregard for what the sacrament is, that it is the living, crucified, and risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ leads to death. But conversely, it has the power to give life. So when the church fathers called this the medicine of immortality, I mean, they weren't just being superfluous no, it, or, it, or hyperbolic. No. How could it not? How could the, the risen body of Christ not have the effect of bringing life? wherever it is. Now, we understand that this can be abused in the sense that we've read accounts of people back in Luther's day and probably before where they would skeech the host from church and not consume it, which is what they're supposed to do, and take it and put it in their garden so that their daffodils or what have you would come up quicker, come up more hardy. You've read these accounts? Oh, yes, and they would put it in their pockets so that they could use it uh, if they ever got sick as a way of warding off death. And that's where the practice of placing the host in the mouth came, uh, was so that people couldn't abscond with the host. And do wasn't do what wasn't intended. I had no idea. Yeah. So it's just like we're we're making sure. Exactly. This is going straight from the pre-sand <laughs> into your mouth, and then you better swallow. <laughs> well, and this is why it's made to dissolve, right? So it doesn't. So it doesn't. So it's hard to put under your tongue and get back to your seat before you stick it in your pocketbook. Cough it up. Yeah. Again, we're talking about the the power of the external 
institutions and of the Lord Jesus Christ to to do what they say. So why did their hearts burn within them? It wasn't it wasn't that they worked themselves up to a frenzy. Uh, it's that through his word and sacrament, the Lord Jesus Christ came to them, forgave their sins, assured them that they were in Christ. And this is what makes our hearts burn within us, mm. this external application. And, you know, we could easily blame Charles Finney, but I'm sure, I'm sure there are many others that we could point the finger to. But clearly today, how we get a congregation of folks for their heart to burn within them is not through the means that the Lord has given us. It is through lights and music. And your, your hand actions here, people, I wish people could see them. <laughs> when you had started this little speech, you put your hands out uh, about uh, chest level as if they were holding knobs. And I think you were going to say, <laughs> what we do is we dial it up, right? We dial up the experience. Yeah. Or we don't, uh, but, but evangelicals. But do. it is done. I mean, this is the way it's done. We've even listened to various pastors in the Pluck Chicken podcast who they utilize their, their voice and the way to get audience participation. to And the mood music. The mood music. Oh, yeah, the sermon that had the mood music through the entire sermon. These are all techniques to get one's heart to burn within them. What did Finney call them? Extra measures or... or uh, new measures. New measures, new measures, yeah. These things are still alive and well today. And here's the problem. There is no promise or command of God attached to them. There's no benefit whatsoever. Right. Get this. I mean, this is so important. If I do something thinking that I am going to get in touch with God, apart from God's command and promise, I have engaged in idolatry. It's demonic. That is not too light of a statement to make, frankly, about these new measures, about dialing up the, the emotive ambiance of a of a worship service it's highly problematic i would think that any evangelical who actually thinks about all of this stuff that god wants to come to you this way and your church is actually trying to get you to go to god their way that they would see this for what this is and say i don't want any part of that I think the the difficulty is though, and you're, this is, you know goes back to your experience and mine as we've dealt with people with toes in the sort of shallow end of uh, evangelicalism, and they get pulled in on the emotive level. And once the emotions are there, and we know this just from everything. I mean, folks out there, you gotta listen to this. When you are emotionally tied to something, you can't think straight. Uh, and a team of horses can't pull them away from it. Right, right. G.K. Chesterton has a wonderful statement in, in his book called Orthodoxy. Uh, mind you, G.K. Chesterton was a, a Roman Catholic, but th this, this statement is just fantastic. He says, in effect, the only difference between a, a madman and a perfectly sane man is that the, the madman's universe of facts is smaller. In other words, think about the guy who's putting, you know, a, aluminum foil on top of his head and going out, you know, when the stars are aligning just perfectly. His whole account of how this is going to work is perfectly rational. It's just that the universe of facts that he's dealing with is smaller. Now, I would argue that this is the same thing that we're dealing with when we're trying to talk to evangelical folks, is that the universe of facts has been cut down, trimmed out. Somehow or other, we, we don't 
what is what is brought as scriptural fact before them is discounted as fact. It doesn't come into play, but if it came into play, it would have to fundamentally alter their entire perspective on what Christianity is, I how get God it. wants to come to you. That's a great analogy. I think that's exactly the case. So, so, so what would you say that the facts are for the evangelical? I mean, probably it comes down to fundamentalism, wouldn't you say that? That the, these fundamentals that were developed in the 20th or yeah, early 20th century, uh, Jesus died for me, the, I, I believe the virgin birth, uh, I believe that I'm justified only by faith. He's coming again. He's coming again, right? So as long as you got those things in place, anything else is either not fact or not fact worth dealing with. So when presented with something like this, where somebody along the way has, has said, okay, look, the way to come to God is by working yourself up while we dial up the, the, the light show and the music and all that sort of stuff. For them, that's in this neutral territory or this territory outside of what God says. For the evangelical, there is such an emphasis placed on that heart religion. And you never would acknowledge that you have been making God into your own image. But that is what they're doing. And it is such a roller coaster because sometimes one feels very close to the Lord and sometimes they feel very, very distant. There's nothing concrete. There's nothing external. There's nothing tangible that they can hold on to or be given or receive. So the idol is the heart? I would say so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about the books that I used to read. Every book I had, they all said the same thing, right? They're all sacramentarians. They all read the scriptures the way that I was telling you. They look at uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they really don't know what to do with it, so they put it over here. Uh, Eutychus, they're going to take him and just go, oh, this was just an interesting miracle of Paul. They're not going to connect that to the Lord's Supper, just like they're not going to connect the, the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus to to the Lord's Supper, just like they're not going to connect uh, Acts 2.42, where it clearly says that they gathered together to break bread. That's potluck. All right. <laughs> Funeral potatoes, huh? They don't make these connections, just like, as I said earlier, with Melchizedek. Okay, he brought bread and wine. Wouldn't even phase them. They wouldn't even hear the resonance. No, mm-hmm. even if, as you were saying earlier, that is such a faint resonance. But it's it's like they're tone deaf to these things. That's because they have grape juice. If you would have brought bread and grape juice, that would have been a different thing. <laughs> that would have been the clear indication, right? <laughs> so, like you you read Psalm twenty three, and it talks about leading you beside still waters and green pastures, where he's feeding. You know, and you read these things are about how he prepares a table in the presence of my enemies, or my cup runneth over. Again, might be a very, very faint echo of the Lord's Supper. They don't hear it. They don't hear it at all. And what's interesting to me is the way that uh, Psalm 23 uh, in the hymns of the English tradition, and I think largely Wesleyan, uh, so so this is kind of post-New Measures stuff, how emotive and almost, I don't even know what label to slap on it, but, you know, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. this kind Mm -hmm. of lullaby-ish or just very, frankly, feminine. And I got to believe that that is entirely geared to the emotions so that the words of the psalm 
aren't the thing. It's the way it makes me feel that's the thing. You know what, Pastor Bros? You are such a Pharisee. Oh, I, I feel plenty. You know, I feel plenty in church. You know, there are times when, when um, you know, I, I have to keep my emotions in check. If this is the truth, which it is, this is a great joy and a wonderful freedom rather than reading through your Bible and not hearing these echoes. I mean, as we'll get into these next few verses here, verses 19 and 20, where he takes bread and wine, this was not an afterthought. Clearly, the Bible was written by one divine author who carries this message all the way throughout. Now, maybe this is where, you know, the pebble goes into the lake, so to speak, but the ripple of this it extends all the way out from Revelation all the way to Genesis. Genesis, it did indeed, indeed, yeah. And then it hits those edges, and it kind of comes back. Yep, I love that. And um, it, you just go back to emotions here real quick. Please. Verse 15, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Let's leave the uh, emoting to Jesus. <laughs> but, but here, you know, what he does is he sanctifies, he sanctifies our desire. And those who are in Christ, you know, begin to be remade in the image of the one in whom they have been redeemed. And this desire that the Lord Jesus has to eat this meal uh, becomes our own desire for different reasons. He, to be the self-donating God that he is, and we, to be the receiving people of God that he has made us through our baptism into him. So should we continue here? Yes, let's yes, pick okay. it up. Verse 19, And having taken bread and having given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And the cup likewise, after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which for you is poured out. Chemnitz, one of the Lutheran dogmaticians, makes a, a big point about the slight difference in wording from one account to the other. Number one, uh, what it does is it legitimates the fact that these are all eyewitnesses of the same episode. You and I, well, of course, Luke wasn't an eyewitness, but he's heard it from eyewitnesses, as we hear from Luke chapter, well, Luke chapter one. Okay, but here, here's the interesting thing. Um, we, we've got slight variances in wording, which is uh, all well and good. The thing that really jumps out here, we've talked about several of these, like this is my body. The, again, this, is, this does not vary from the Matthean account. So Matthew has exactly the same words that Luke does. And this is carried throughout every single one of the accounts, okay? The verb is is in there. Uh, the verb is is superfluous. It doesn't need to be there, but uh, when it's there, it's emphatic. And so who dares mess around with the words of the last will and testament of Lord Jesus Christ? But then we get down to verse 20, and we hear about the New Testament in my blood, which for you is poured out. Let's talk about that word new, shall we? Yeah. I, I can't wait to hear you talk about how this cup, talking about what's in this cup, it's not uh, the the grail. The grail isn't the isn't the thing. Right. 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 The Indiana so, Jones. This is the cup of a carpenter. Right. Uh, it, it is what's inside that cup is the New Testament. Right. And how do you know that? I mean, what natural language thing would you? Well, because I don't consume the container. C correct. So you don't consume the container. Number one. Number two. This is just a totally natural way of talking. 
look, there's a box over, we're, we're in this space here, there's a box over there, and I know that inside the box, it holds all of these attendance cards for Sunday school. So I point over to that box and I say, that box is the Sunday school attendance record. Seriously, the box is not. It's what's in the box. We talk this way all the time. This mm-hmm. is just a natural way of talking. So, you know, people don't need to get worked up about this business. And, and I think the other thing that you point out so well is that he says, drink of it, all of you, right? And this is back in Matthew, Matthew 27, drink of it, all of you. You don't drink the container, right? You drink what's in the container. But this is also, too, especially in a liturgical church, uh, the pastor will make the sign of the cross. Typically, uh, when he is reciting the verba, he'll make the sign of the cross, this cup, over what is in the chalice, meaning that that element is the blood, is the blood of the New, of the New Testament. And will do something for the person who consumes it. Right, according to Jesus' promise. Yeah, so let's talk about the word new here that is used. There are two Greek words for for new. One is neos, and the other one is kainos. And neos means like recent, most up-to-date. Okay, that's what that's what neos means. For example, I could call today a neahemera, a new day. Today is a new day. Why? Because it's the most recent one. Um, but if I called today a kainehemera, there are all sorts of resonances in Greek that are very different. It's a new day, not in the sense that it's the most recent day, but it's an entirely different kind of deal. Uh, this day is, well, something different. Not different just because it's the most recent. Now, this word, kainos, gets connected in the scriptures, right, with things like new song and other phrases that we're quite familiar with. These are always songs of redemption, we hear about it in Isaiah. I mean, you hear about Moses uh, sings a new song. There, this is just all over the place. Miriam sings a new song. Right. Okay. So, so what's the what's the deal here? Is that like this is the most recent song? No, that's not the point. It's a song of redemption. It's a song about Yahweh in the Old Testament breaking through the sinful drudgery of this world and doing something to save His people. And that's exactly the way this is being used here. This is a New Testament in the sense that it is breaking through the drudgery of sin and death and devil and bringing something different from from the very Lord himself. So when we see in the book of Judges this, this cycle of the people doing what's right in their own eyes, the Lord then sending calamity, uh, usually in the form of a, a warring tribe of some sort, the Moabites or with Samson, the Philistines. Then the people crying out to the Lord, the Lord then sending a judge who then leads them to some military conquest and then judges them for whatever given period of time, 20, 40 years, what have you. For instance, with the judge Deborah, after Sisera mm-hmm. has that, that spike nailed into his head, yet again by another woman, which really is a, a shame at this time over the men, in that you have a female Victor. judge. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all female. I mean, it's it's women power here. She sings a new song. Mm-hmm. It's it's God delivering His people from this from this vicious cycle. Right, right, exactly. At least in Judges. 
when Isaiah talks about it, it's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 uh, I guess it's Miriam who sings the song after the Egyptians are collapsed by the water drown, and drown yeah. there. Mm-hmm. You're tying all of that to the word new. That it is, this is the redemptive work of God in this supper. And I, I don't want people to have a supersessionarian sense out of this word new. Jesus is not signaling, look, the Passover is done with this meal. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that this is the ultimate redemptive meal. That's what he's saying fundamentally and primarily. Now, if because of that reason it supersedes the Passover, that's that's well and good. Uh, but, but he's not saying, look, uh, you guys used to celebrate the Passover, but now I'm going to give you a more recent kind of up-to-date meal, <laughs> and it's the sacrament of the altar. That's not what is going on at all. It, it is, uh, in a sense, even a, well, I mean, his institution of it with, with the Passover indicates that it's a fulfillment of the Passover. Is there any connection here to what you're saying to how, however many years later, after this is established, the temple is totally done with. It's it's over. I mean, not only was uh, a foreshadowing of this uh, the night in which Christ died mm. in the, the, the curtain of the, yeah. mm-hmm. being torn, but then, you know, Titus Vespasian coming in and smashing it. It's like the transmission through a rod at this point, right? I mean, it's over. Park it, it's done. But what are we still left with? We're still left with the word. We're still left with the means of grace. Like we don't we don't need a a temple that a physical who, temple. Whose only job was to point to the enfleshed temple. And once the enfleshed temple has come, the the old temple has served its purpose. Served and, its purpose. And, and I think it's important for our hearers to understand too. You know, you had talked I loved the image that you used earlier this dropping the stone in the middle of the pond, right, and seeing the ripples go out. What's going on in the temple is not sacrifice for sin, like sacrifice to make up for sin. It is sacrifice done pointing to the one whose sacrifice makes up for sin. It, it is, in other words, what happens in the temple is sacramental. It's the delivery of what is going to come, not a kind of stopgap measure until the one who comes, comes. Right, and the people in the Old Testament were saved by believing just that. They had faith that he would come, just like we are saved because we're looking, we we have faith looking back to that he has come. Right, and this is all God's view from eternity. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world and all that sort of stuff. I mean, God looks at the entire world from Adam and Eve till the last per- baby who's born, right, as redeemed by the blood of Christ. It's not just as though those uh, who were born after Christ or lived while He was alive can can be redeemed by His blood. Everybody was, and this is where Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, and I think it's interesting. A lot of times people say, "Well, you know, that's just he he trusted God enough to allow God to lead him out of the uh, out of Ur to no, Canaan." No. And that's absolutely not what it is. No, right? it's the gospel. It's totally the gospel. It's the gospel expressed in a certain way. Yeah, it's Old Testament gospel. Right? It's a little fuzzy to us, but but it is clearly gospel 
to him because it's, Paul says it's gospel in Galatians chapter 3. Correct. And, and, and you know, it's not that difficult to make the account, right? So, so to, to sort of hear what Abraham heard. Um, Abraham would have known the protoevangelium from Genesis chapter 3. That, Absolutely. That, that, the, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. And this theme gets just carried throughout Genesis. It's so consistent. And so then when Abraham is identified as the one through whose loins the promise would be fulfilled, the way that God expresses it, is that I'm going to lead you, separate you, make you a special people, so on and so forth. But Abraham gets it entirely. Of course he does. And this is where the reason we can get it is because Paul then explains it. He connects the dots. Correct. Otherwise, we would not see it as clearly as, as it should be seen. Paul comes along and says he did not say offsprings, but offspring, and the offspring who is Christ. Right. And, and, and right, that, that every family in the world is going to be blessed and all this sort of stuff. I mean, and, and they have been. Indeed. And see, Abraham hears this loud and clear. Yeah, and you think about, so what you said was he was very familiar with the proto-euangelion. So especially if Melchizedek is Shem. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, even if he's not, you know, he still was very familiar with that original promise. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you one question about this New Testament in my blood. You're connecting the word new to this redemptive work of God, i.e. the singing of the new song. Right. How does the word New Testament fit with Old Testament? The reason I say that is because this is what I've heard before, that the New Testament is now in Christ's blood. The Old Testament was in animal blood. I think there are problems with the word testament, don't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if this is the testament, you know, we what do we call the 27 books? Right. We call it the, yeah, New, Testament. the New Testament. And, and what and what do we call this, you know, the whatever, 66 minus 27 of, of 39. The Old Testament. 39, thank you. Um, of the Old Testament. We call them the Old Testament, right? So part of the problem is the ambiguity of the language here. Testamentum I think uh, that's translating the term martyria, witness, right? This is the old witness, and this is the new witness. This is the older in time witness. This is the newer nea witness to what God has done. But the word testament here used uh, in the words of institution, you know, I, I think it would be a better a better way to translate it would be that this is a new last will and testament, a different kind of last will and testament. Okay, fair enough. But what then was the old? I don't will and testament. The the question is, what does this rest on? But again, I think what you're, I think what we're doing is we're saying, if we've got a, if, if we've we got, got a new, then we've we got, got to have old, right? Well, and and what I'm saying is, is that in God's mind, if we have kainos, this is always the way God wants to operate with His world. Then why do we call the thirty nine books? The Old Testament. I recognize that there's gospel, you know, you squeeze on it, gospel just pours out everywhere. What is the old? Let's go back to the canon, okay? When we talk about canon, Old Testament, New Testament, we're saying old witness to the Christ who was going to come, New Testament, contemporary witness, 
or recent witness to the Christ who has come. Okay. Okay. It's witness to. That's, that's how testament is being used in that sense. When you have the testament in, in the institution of the sacrament, that's a different sense of the word testament. It's the sense of the word last will and testament. Okay. Okay. And so it carries all sorts of different I get it. baggage with it. So that is it. And yeah, what did you say? If we were to name the 39 books of, of this and the 27 of this, what, what would be a better usage? Old witness. Old witness. New witness. Recent witness. Recent witness. Older witness, more recent witness. So when you write and translate a sacramental version of the Bible, this is what you're going to call it. I, I think that would be helpful. I think it would really help people to understand what's going on. Yeah, there. just like and it would be helpful up. for you to say, when you said a couple podcasts ago that the literal translation of the Bible is stupid. It's the natural. That's what you're looking right, for, right. the natural, the natural meaning of it. Right. Literal interpretation gets you in trouble. Yes. Because you read poetry like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when Jesus says here, this cup is the New Testament, it has nothing to do with the Old Testament. As scriptures. As scriptures or blood sacrifice of the animals or anything like this. It has nothing to do with it no. at all. It is a last will and testament in the section of scriptures that is the more recent witness compared to the old witness. Correct. Correct. I can see how there'd be real confusion there, and pulling this apart is, is super helpful. So old witness and most recent, recent witness. witness. Right. And so the idea here is, as we said before, the people in the old witness time, they're looking forward to a Messiah who is going to come, crush the head of the serpent, which goes back to, by the way, Sisera, whose head was crushed with the, oh, with the that's wonderful. tent peg. By a woman, no less. <laughs> right. So then in the most recent witness, these are the quote-unquote eyewitnesses to his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and his continuing to build his church. Right. That's right. I, I, I think that's the best way to think about it. So, so this kine diatheke, this New Testament in my blood. Okay? Yeah. If you have it as a most recent witness, you can stick New Testament in there, and there's, it eliminates the confusion. Because it's seen as its own thing, not pertaining to the whole. I would say that that the kine diatheke in his blood, the the New Testament in his blood, is the same exact last will and testament that the Lord has had for his people, for the world, from the fall into sin until now. He wants to save it. But... When he says New Testament, he's not going into this covenants language that some evangelicals get into when they go back and they look at the Abrahamic covenant and the Noadic covenant, the Adamic covenant. I mean, all of these covenants that the Lord gave almost, almost in a dispensational mm -hmm. schema. 
Yeah, it's, it, it is sort of dispensationalist. And I think what you could say is that what has changed? It's perhaps the delivery mechanism, the sacramental mechanism has changed. For Abraham, it was circumcision. For Moses, it is the Passover. That's how God delivers the goods to his people. Something always physical. Okay, and that's the commonality. That's the common thread is that there's this physicality to it. But the delivery me- mechanism changes when you, you know, if you want to break it up into Adamic, Noahidic, uh, Mosaic, Abrahamic covenants. But what has not changed, physicality hasn't changed. The other thing that hasn't changed is that they are incorporations into the redemption of Christ. All right, so you're wanting to discuss remembrance. Right, this seems to be one of the major uh, hang-up points, doesn't it, between Lutherans on the one hand and uh, Protestants on the other. And, uh, you know, as you've noted many times, right, you walk into a Methodist church or a Baptist church or uh, any place like that, and you see the altar, and what does it say on it? Oh, yeah, do this in remembrance of me. Right, so it's all remembrance, right? And we've heard plenty of that stuff in these sermons that we've been listening to, haven't we? Oh, yeah, I was doing some vacancy work uh, while I was waiting for the call, and I walked into this church— And in the narthex, there was a table, and it said, do this in remembrance of me. I just saw, (laughs) this is a Missouri Synod church? Yeah. Yeah, I just saw a Missouri Synod website that had uh, one of those little tiles to click for what they teach about the sacrament of the altar. And some, you know, some well-meaning Christian, no doubt, had put one up there with the uh, chalice and the host, and it said, do this in remembrance. And I thought, oi, oi, oi. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And I, I guess it's okay if you're a Lutheran and you and you see that and you go, okay, you know, I can, that's scripture. You know, Jesus says that. Right. But that table is there shouting, right? Like all the church furniture is, is constantly teaching. It's didactic. Mm-hmm. Everything is teaching something. Well, that table is is yelling something. That table is not yelling, yes, I believe in the real presence. That table is conjuring up Zwingli himself. It is, yes, right. You know, it's interesting that you say uh, all church furniture teaches. You're exactly right. Uh, I was thinking about then, what about the absence of church furniture? And that teaches too. It does teach, doesn't it? The guy on the stool with the sort of cool cocktail table yeah exactly or uh, the plexiglass the plexiglass acrylic you know lectern what does it say i mean what it teaches this is all about the guy what it teaches is we got nothing we got nothing beyond this guy and then the guy shows up and he's he's wearing his coolest outfit because so it's about this guy and his and his uh, machismo and not about what the lord wants to give the hipster church the church of the here and now i mean that is the most expensive way to do church ever. I mean, this is why they're always having their people serve. I mean, they need the free labor so they can take the resources that they've been given and move them over to the the guys and gals playing the music for the mood, those lights, they are not cheap, the video productions that they put together. Some of these people have creative teams that they pay for who are always coming up with skits or or themes or backdrops or props for the pastor's series that he's doing. It is the most expensive way to do church. But at the end of the day, it's just so empty and devoid of anything that is rich 
and timeless. Rich and timeless. Rich and timeless. I like that. And the richness is in the teaching aspect, and the timeless is the um, timelessness of the gospel. Yeah, and so anybody listening to this, go into the church and just look at the furniture and ask the question, what is this teaching? So we're going back to what we were saying earlier about these tables. And so these churches that still have it, the table has been placed between the pastor and the people. Yes, and that generally is the place where the offering plates are kept with some flowers, maybe an open Bible. And then when the Lord's Supper is served, this is where the the elements are kept. That table is doing all of the preaching. Mm -hmm. Do this in remembrance Mm -hmm. of me. Uh, Once again, uh, this is, I think, a pretty unfortunate instance of where evangelical uh, slash reformed theology has taken Lutherans by the nose. And, uh, I mean, we just don't have our own translation of the scriptures in in English. And we talked about why that is. I I think we did that on this podcast. But there's a real translation problem. Well, uh, English was foisted. Upon the Lutherans Mm -hmm. in this country, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we took the King James tradition, and that's kind of still where we're at. And as you read that, what what does it say? So in remembrance of is that, like, this is the purpose for which you're doing it. So you're, I'm doing this. I'm eating this bread, drinking this this grape juice, and I'm doing it for the purpose of remembering Jesus. And this is all this sort of pious stuff, right? That's kind of, that's exactly how this how this comes off. But there's a huge problem here in the language, uh, in the underlying Greek language. In Greek, it says, Tuto poiete eis tain emain anamnesin. Now, there are different ways of, in fact, there's a fundamentally different way of, of using words in that semantic domain to say what the English translation says for the purpose of remembering me. Now, as soon as you recognize that, you realize that something else is going on with those words. The word in, like in remembrance, okay, that word in, is the Greek word ace. Now, it can show purpose. There's no question about it. But typically, it's for in different syntaxes. There, there are other options out there for us, though. One of those options is up to the time of or until. That's one possibility. So it can be a temporal word. So do it until the time of remembrance. Let's just put that in the back of our head. The other way that ace can be used, uh, and this gets used very frequently, is in respect to or in relation to. So let's just park both of those ideas for the moment. Now we're going to go on to the word remembrance. And the word remembrance uh, in Greek is anamnesis. Anamnesis. And it's a verbal noun, what's called a verbal noun. Uh, It's an abstract verbal noun. And hearing the resonances from the Old Testament is extremely important. In the Old Testament. You You mean the old witness, right? In the old witness, correct. In the old witness, remembrance is always God's remembrance. And it's his remembering of his promises to his people. Right? Or to whoever he gave the promise gave to. Gave the promise in the first place, right? And we could come up with a catalog of these passages. Uh, we just encourage you, if you've got you know Strong's Concordance or something like that, just go find all the, these places where God remembers. And what he's remembering is his promises to whomever he's made the promises to. 
What this suggests is that the remembering is not my remembering something else, me as the eater of the bread and the drinker of the wine, but God's remembering. This is huge. It is huge. Third thing. There are two ways of saying my in Greek. One is the way it says it here, eistein emein anamnesin. The other would be to say eistein anamnesin emu. With constructions like the one that we've got here, if the remembering were to be directed from me to Jesus, it you would use that ladder. You'd use emu. Mm-hmm. If Jesus is the one doing the the, the remembering, it's emein. Guess what it is in, in, in this text? It's emein anamnesin. Now, let's put all this stuff together and see what this actually says. Do this up to the time of me remembering my promises. That's one way of understanding it. Or do this in respect of me remembering my promises. So we have option A, do this up to the time of. Option B, do this in respect of me remembering. Let's take option A. Option A actually gets glossed by what St. Paul says uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So get this. This is exactly how it goes. I'm reading to you from 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and 26. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. Well, let me do it the other way. This do as often as you drink it up to the point of my remembering, until the point of my remembering. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. So in a sense, the, just as the eschatological horizon is collapsed in the sacrament of the altar, it's also expanded. The gifts are delivered in view of the, of the consummation of the redemption that is in Jesus when he comes again. That's one way of understanding it, and that seems to be what Paul is hearing. The other way is, is simply this, that this is this celebratory meal that we all engage in, um, through which the Lord gives us what he won on the cross of Calvary, and we're doing it in respect of the fact that he has done this. In other words, this meal is connected t- to his ultimate act of remembrance, and it connects me to his ultimate act of remembering and delivers to me the goods. These are far better ways of understanding the words here, do this in remembrance of me. And this completely dashes and undercuts this whole idea of the onus, the burden being on me to do the remembering prompted by bread and grape juice and mood music. Just like with the New Testament, like that ties us back to what we've seen throughout the Bible. Because if I'm not mistaken, we sing a new song in Revelation as well. Right. So it's not just tying us back to the old witness. It's tying us to the totality of all of the scriptures with the word new. And what you're saying is that even with the word remembrance, it does the same thing. It ties us to the entire character that we've seen of God where he remembers Noah, he remembers Moses, he remembers Abraham. And so... And then, of course, when we look at St. Paul, who nobody is going to disagree. I mean, he's a Pharisee of Pharisee. He's, he is all that. I mean, he is Mensa, right, of, of Pharisees, uh, of yeah. Judaism. Mm-hmm. He's tying it to this remembrance as well. 
takes us again, the ripple effect goes out a lot further than just this this epicenter or this ground zero here of this text. That's really interesting, right? The, the first delivery of the gospel in the garden, the second delivery of the gospel to, to Noah, the third to Abraham, so on and so forth. And, right. and actually, as many times as it was articulated, you know, from father to son and daughter to mother through the ages. Yeah? Right. Right. That's awesome. And what I found so amazing about the Lutheran pastors, to my shame, they would reference the Lord's Supper and baptism every sermon. I mean, every sermon. It might not be the the uh, central thing that they're talking about, but it's going to get an honorable mention. Evangelical ears that can go years without hearing a reference to that. I mean, this is what we've done in listening to these these sermons. I've had to go back in and find the one sermon that this guy is going to preach on the Lord's Supper. That's why for David Platt, we had to go back to 2009. This is why for a lot of these guys, I got to go digging around in their archives to, to find it and, and drag it back out and dust it off for us to, to listen to because they're not going to mention it again. And then when somebody comes into their church and says, hey, I'd like to know something about what you believe about the Lord's Supper, they're going to say, oh, I preached that back in 2009. We'll get an eight track for you and give it to you. That's very interesting to me. In a Lutheran church, it gets mentioned all the time, but then it gets taught annually for weeks and weeks during catechesis and in various other uh, sure. places. So. Uh, so, so the point is, I just wanted to clarify though. It's not as though it's not as though we talk. We just m- give it honorable mentions and forget about it. It's actually taught very clearly and in depth to the children and to to anybody who is taking Bible classes. Basically, any Lutheran pastor who goes and sees shut-ins, what's he take? The sacrament of the altar. <laughs> right. That's that's what he's bringing to this person. I mean, he's bringing the Word as well in his hymn book and, you know, sing a hymn and read some Scripture and have a devotion, uh, say prayer, but he's there to, to bring the goods. And this is not this is not in the mentality of the evangelical. Is that right? Is yeah. there no preaching takes place? I mean, there might be a devotion. I'm not—what I, I am saying is there is no Lord's Supper. Right, right. As I've thought about it, if this is Jesus for you, and these are the means in which Jesus uses— to bring what he won on the cross for you, namely life, salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. Of course the Lutheran pastor is going to talk about it all the time. Right. Why wouldn't he? And if it's not, why why do you need to talk about it at all? And this is why the evangelical doesn't. Yeah, well, Pastor Kearns, I think that gets us to the end of our material for today. We've got lots more to talk about, uh, Mark and 1 Corinthians and... Um, we'll just see what we come up with next time. Yeah, I think we uh, do one more time at this, and then we probably might want to turn our attention to, to baptism. Very good. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or St. John LCMS Topeka.org.